We are in the middle of a sermon series. This is technically week five. We've got three more weeks to go. Where we're covering the Psalms. And so the series we're doing is Worship in the Psalms. And so what happens is about once a year, I go away somewhere and um, I do all the sermon planning for the year. So I try to get everything down for, you know, a year plus in advance. And uh, this year, as I was doing some brainstorming for this, I found an album by Shane and Shane, if you guys are familiar with this group, Shane and Shane, where they had taken um, a number of different psalms and then put them to new music. And so I thought, well, that'd be really interesting to do a sermon series based upon those particular psalms where the worship team would then play the song that Shane and Shane wrote and then put sort of to new music. That might be a good opening introduction. And then the words of that psalm, like lots of songs, will get stuck in your head. And so that's the idea behind this. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 13. And so the worship team is going to be playing the Shane and Shane rendition of that in just a moment after I pray. And then we'll jump in and take a look at the words of Psalm 13. Let's take a moment now and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for inviting us into your presence. I thank you, Father, that not only did you invite us into your presence, but that you provided a way for us to be reconciled with you through Jesus. Father, not only that our records would now be clean, but also, Father, that your spirit would dwell in our hearts and so that now um, our spirit uh, is drawn to you because of your Holy Spirit within us. Father, I pray that we would hear the words of this uh, psalm today and uh, that we would join in with David and we would cry, how long? But that we would also join with him in rejoicing uh, over your salvation as well. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll remember from last week, we did Psalm 34, and Psalm 34 began, began with praise, and then it ended with a call to action. And this week, part of what we heard and part of what we're going to read in just a moment is that in Psalm 13, David begins with a lament. He feels abandoned by God. He feels forgotten by God. He even accuses God of hiding from him. Some of us probably have woken up in the morning and we felt that distance from God. Maybe we've experienced long swaths of our lives where we've wondered where in the world he is. David even accuses God of giving him up over to his enemies. He feels like his enemies are closing in upon him and that God is nowhere to be found in his time of need. And yet, despite what David feels, he reminds himself of what is true about God. And that shift changes his mood from one of despair to one of trust, even hope, even rejoicing. Let's read Psalm 13 in its entirety. Uh, the title is for the director of music, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. What do we see here in Psalm 13? The first thing we see here is that even when it feels like God has forgotten us, we can trust in him because of his unfailing love. Look at verse 1. We'll look at the very first part of that verse. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. What the NIV translates as unfailing love, the ESV translates as steadfast love. 
the New American Standard translation uh, translate this, this same word as faithfulness, and each of them is right, none of them is wrong. They're each capturing the idea conveyed by the Hebrew word hesed. You guys have probably heard that word if you uh, lived in the Christian subculture for a little while. But hesed is not unlike agape love that we read about in the New Testament. It's an active love, just like agape love is. It's marked by what is good for the other, just like agape love is. And above all, like agape, hesed love is loyal. In his book, A Loving Life, Paul Miller calls hesed love, love without an exit strategy. Love without an exit strategy. A couple weeks ago, we uh, read a quote uh, by Larry Crabb about love, where he says that Christian love is to be supernaturally committed to the well-being of another without any thought of what cost it to ourselves. It's this love without an exit strategy. As I looked in my study helps, I read the following about said love, particularly as it pertained to God. So listen to here very quickly to some of the things that God's said love looks like. The Bible, Bible speaks of God's said working itself out in redemption from enemies and trouble. So if you go to some of the, uh, the formal um, sort of Hebrew studies, you'll see that this is one of the descriptions, redemption from enemies and troubles. Somewhat ironically, it's used in the story of Joseph to describe God's faithful love to him in the midst of trials. Now, I say ironically because you can imagine that for years and years, uh, Joseph has been sold into slavery, and then he's falsely accused, and he's falsely imprisoned. And then the people that are in the prison with him promise to get him out when they go back to Pharaoh, and they forget about him. And yet, throughout all of this, we read that God's said love is present with Joseph in the midst of his trials. And what we know, because we exist outside of Joseph's story, is that God was actually with Joseph in each of those moments and ultimately redeemed him from those enemies, redeemed him from those troubles. And I'm sure that during many of those years of false imprisonment and slavery, there were probably plenty of times where Joseph did not feel particularly loved by God. He probably felt abandoned by God. Like the psalmist, I'm sure there would have been many times when Joseph cried out, how long, O Lord? How long do I have to be separated from my family? How long do I have to live as a slave? How long do I have to be falsely imprisoned? How long, O Lord? And again, as I said earlier, I'm sure there are many of us in this room have experienced moments like that in relation to God as well. God has felt very, very distant from some of us, maybe silent in the midst of our sufferings, And we've cried out, how long, O Lord? How long must I suffer? How long will you hide your face from me? The suffering might be bearable if we knew that God was with us, but so often it feels like he is absent. Like both David and Joseph, there comes a moment, however, of remembering that God has loved us in the past and that he loves us still. It's my prayer that as we remember that love for us, we will experience his love and that we will be encouraged. The word hesed is also used in relation to God as it describes him protecting people from death, protecting people from death. So think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Hesed is used in relation to God's redeeming people from their sins. Think about David in Psalm 51 as he repents of his sin to Bathsheba. Hesed is also used of God quickening people to spiritual life, or in other words, awakening them spiritually. And it's used to describe God's keeping his covenant promises with less than perfect people like Abraham, Moses, David, 
and over and over again, the children of Israel. It's God keeping his promises to people who, frankly, don't, don't hold up their ends of the bargain very well. About a week ago, I drove down to Rock Mart to look at a motorcycle. So I'll talk, you can ask me about this privately if you want to, but I'm, I'm looking at, uh, well, actually, it's a long story. I bought a motorcycle last night. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but I went down to Rock Mart, and um, I had been on the phone with Ricky a few times, and Ricky had bought this motorcycle about a year ago and was selling it because he just wasn't riding it very much. And so I showed up at his gravel driveway and drove up and uh, ended up sort of test driving this motor- motorcycle, talked to he and his wife, and uh, it was really interesting because Ricky was just kind of a crusty old guy who was awesome. I loved him. But, you know, he was um, kind of like you would expect a crusty old guy from Rock Mart to be. He walked out with blue jeans, white tennis shoes, an old T-shirt, an American flag hat, smoking a cigarette. Could understand maybe 50% of what he said, but again, it was a fun guy. And uh, he was a little crusty, a little Southern. His wife came out a little while uh, later, and she was as vivacious as he was crusty. And they were, you know, probably in their late 60s would be my guess. And so I was chatting with them a little bit, and just out of the blue, Ricky volunteered, we've been together for 50 years. And I was like, wow, man, that's really impressive. Congratulations. And I said, I said, what is the secret to staying together for 50 years? And he goes, well, she just keeps forgiving me. And I looked over to her, and she had a big smile on her face and no bitterness. And she said, yep. She said, people just don't stay together anymore. But I thought it was very interesting that that was a picture of Hesed love. It's loyal, God's loyalty to us when we're not particularly loyal to him. Surely she, his wife, had kept her covenant with a less than perfect person, and God's, God does the same with us. Despite feeling distant from God, David remembers God's faithfulness to him, and he trusts that though he might not feel God's presence at the moment, He believes, chooses to believe that God is still there. I'm sure that some of us can identify with David this morning. It feels as though God has turned his face away from you, that he has forgotten you. But I encourage you this morning to remember God's hesed love to you. He redeemed you. He pursued you. And most of all, he's given his son for you. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has has said love towards you and towards me and towards David. What else do we see in this psalm? Second primary point or secondary point is even when it feels like God has forgotten us, we can rejoice because of his salvation. Verses five and six again. This time we're going to read sort of verse section 1b of verse five. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But we're going to focus on that section. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Whereas David has trusted in uh, God's has said love, here David states that his heart shall rejoice in God's salvation. Now that word shall is a little bit of a, an old-fashioned word. We, we don't use that very often. Or if we do, it's when we're wearing a leather smoking jacket somewhere. Interestingly, both the ESV and the NAS, which are both sort of the more literal translations, they both use the word shall, as they're trying to capture some particular idea with that word. The Hebrew word here is actually in the imperfect tense. What that means is that it's ongoing action. It has begun, and it continues. It's ongoing action. So in other words, what David is saying here is he's saying, because of your salvation, my heart will keep on rejoicing. I won't give up. 
Some of you guys can identify also with David in this. You felt distant from God. It feels like he's hiding his face from you, particularly in your time of need. But like David, you can't quite stop praising God. You remember all that he's done for you in the past, and you believe that despite your current circumstances that God will show up again to rescue you. The gospel is always a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. That's where you feel a particular way because you're believing things that aren't true. And so what you do is you change the way you're feeling by choosing to believe things that are true. And that's what happens with David here is that he remembers that God keeps showing up to save him. That when he was a boy, God saved him from lions and tigers and bears. That God saved him from giants and from kings. And what's true for us as well is that Jesus showed up and laid down his life to save us from sin and from death, and maybe most importantly, to save us from ourselves. The second thing that I want to point out to you is a word here that's used for salvation. It's interesting. If you look at it in Hebrew, it's actually Yeshua, and some of you would recognize that word. It sounds familiar because it's the Hebrew form of the name of Jesus. In this case, however, it's not being used as a name, but rather it's being used as a noun, The commentators that I read argued that when Yeshua is used in this way and in this kind of context, it usually means this, salvation from an external threat, often with spiritual implications. So let me say that one more time. Salvation from an external threat, but with spiritual implications. We, again, have a familiarity with what that might mean. Earlier in the psalm, we read about the particular enemy that David was talking about. David petitions God. He says this, how long will my enemy triumph over me. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. We don't know exactly what enemy David is talking about here. It could be Saul. It could be Goliath. It could be the Philistines. It could be some other uh, surrounding nation. At any point in time, those were some of David's enemies. But regardless, this antagonist threatens God's very promises to David. And so David, in his desperation, he appeals to God based upon the very promises that God made to him. When David was just a boy, God promised to make David the king of Israel. And God then sealed that promise with a covenant. Here's what God said, I will make for you a great name. And so clearly David's going here, he's saying, look, that hadn't happened yet, so I need you to show up He goes on to say in 2 Samuel 7, I will give you rest from all your enemies. And David's like, hey, I'm still surrounded by enemies here. Please show up. David goes on, or God goes on to say, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And clearly David here is saying that hasn't happened yet either. But David remembers God's past salvation. He assumes because of that his future deliverance and his heart rejoices Or actually, more literally, it says that his heart continues to rejoice. In fact, what's interesting is that word rejoice there means to spin around and around, almost like somebody dancing, they're happy. And so David's heart continues to spin around and around and rejoicing. What happens to your heart when you think about God saving you? It may have been a past salvation when you became a Christian in high school at Young Life Camp in the summer. Maybe it was at a campus outreach beach project. Maybe it was at a youth group event. Maybe your salvation was from something very particular like pornography or some other addiction when you were a young adult. When you think about God rescuing you from that thing, 
what happens in your heart? Does it rejoice? Maybe God rescued your son or your daughter from some sickness or from some destructive relationship. What happens to your heart when you think about that salvation, when you remember it? Maybe when you think about God's salvation, you think about heaven or you think about a resurrection for yourself or for someone you know that you love that's sick or has passed away. I pray that, like David, God's past and future salvation would move your heart to rejoice. What do we see finally in Psalm 13? The last thing we see here is that even when it feels like God has forgotten us, we can praise him because he's been good to us. Again, verses five and six. But I've trusted in your steadfast love that has said love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It will keep on rejoicing. And verse six, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Whereas God's salvation causes David's heart to rejoice internally, God's goodness to David results in him praising the Lord externally. In fact, the word here that's used for sing can mean to break forth in song. I think I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again anyway. I have a buddy that played basketball for the University of Georgia when we were um, in, living in Gainesville. He and I were, were buddies, hung out a lot together. His claim to fame was though he was largely a bench player, he got to use all five of his fouls each year against Shaquille O'Neal. That was a claim to fame. You guys know Shaquille O'Neal. He's about seven feet tall. He's enormous. And so though my buddy was a basketball player his whole life, he did a study abroad program in college where they went uh, to England, and one of the things they did is they went to a Liverpool soccer game. And so Liverpool is a, uh, an English Premier League team, not unlike the Patriots um, in the NFL or the Boston Celtics in the NBA. And so he said beforehand, we went to a pub, and he said while we were in the pub, he said we walked in to get some food, and he said as soon as you walk in, it's just packed like four or five hours before the game. And he said all these people would sort of start singing uh, just sort of spontaneously, and they would all know the song, and they would sing the song, and then the song would finish, and it would be quiet, and they would eat and kind of talk. And then about two minutes later, another song would break forth, and everybody would sing it together, and then they would finish the song, and people would go back to eating and talking. And he said that happened for, you know, several hours in this pub, and he said then they walked over to the, uh, to the stadium, and he said on the way to the stadium, all the fans were singing these songs. They all knew the words together, and then they said they got into the stadium, and as they stood there waiting for the game to start, the people all sang these songs. They knew what the songs were. And then in the middle of the game, they sung during the first half and over halftime in the second half. And he said it was such an amazing experience that it actually created a soccer fan out of him in the early 90s when he was just a basketball fan. Now here, David isn't singing about soccer. He's bursting forth into song because of God's past goodness to him. And he's saying that he knows that he'll keep on singing in the future because of that goodness. The word the ESV translates as dealt bountifully with me, and the NIV translates as has been good to me, is a word that has the implication of service attached to it. It's that God has dealt bountifully with me in service. It's the picture of a host bringing food to the table to feed some guests. And the host isn't serving some meager portion like you might get at a very fancy restaurant when they bring you like one pickle, a piece of lettuce, and a tiny little piece of salmon. Rather, this host is bringing so much food to the table that it can't possibly be eaten. Think about the image of a feast. Think about dwarves from the Lord of the Rings, you know, eating a giant table of food. David is likening God's goodness to him uh, to a, as a feast served by a generous host. He's saying that God is that generous host. He has dealt bountifully with me, to me. 
Think about for a moment from David's perspective. God had protected him from these wild animals in the field throughout his youth. God, through Samuel, had anointed him as king uh, of Israel when he was just a boy. God had given him this victory over Goliath with nothing but an ancient Near Eastern slingshot to fight off this giant with. As David remembers God's bountiful goodness to him, he says, I know that I will sing again. Though I feel distant from you, though I feel like you've hidden your face from me, though I feel like you've given me up to my enemies, his heart begins to change as he remembers God's goodness to him, and he knows, all right, I'll sing again. Maybe some of you can think back to God's goodness to you as well. You have a beautiful home. You have beautiful, healthy children. You have health. You have cars. You have computers. You have coffee shops. Maybe, maybe God rescued you from cancer. Maybe more than anything else, you have a God who has pursued you in order to adopt you into his family as a daughter or as a son. Remember all of God's goodness to you, his bountiful goodness to you, and join with David in singing praises to our God. Now, let me recap very quickly. Like David, we can trust, our heart can rejoice, and our lips can praise God because of his hesed love, because of his salvation, and because of his bountiful goodness to us. Each of those things can be seen in Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. That's hesed love. Jesus' love was and is active. He's loved us even when we didn't love him. It's that that love without an exit strategy. And he is loyal to us even when we have been unfaithful to him. Of course, Jesus died in order to save us from sin and death and from ourselves. The gospel, of course, is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. Romans 5 tells us, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't hesitate to enter in. He didn't wait until we had gotten it right. He didn't wait until we started to look for him. Jesus dove into time and space and willingly put himself upon the cross and stayed there in order that we might be saved. And finally, God has dealt bountifully with us in Jesus. Listen to the words of these very familiar, this very familiar passage of Scripture. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's on our team. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That has said love. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of the emotion that we see here in Psalm 13, that David can honestly um, cry out to you and ask, where are you? Father, that you even give us the permission through Psalm 13 to ask why it is that you've hidden your face from us. Father, that you give us the ability uh, to turn your promises back to you and say, hey, I thought you were going to fulfill these promises to us, Father, that you invite us to lament. And yet, Father, like with David, you lead us to a point of trusting you, Father, rejoicing you and singing to you. And so, Father, I pray that we would end today by doing those three things, that we would trust you, Father, that we would rejoice in you and that we would praise your name in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.